Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing the argument from personal experience. When exploring the howling wilderness of religious epistemology, it's hard to miss the argument from personal experience as a conspicuous monument to its shortcomings. In its essential form, it's simply the assertion that the subjective certainty felt by a person regarding an experience they had means that they're right about some claim they're making. Whether they experience God directly, or they have a revelation where God speaks to them, or even have a near-death experience, or believe that they can remember past lives, there's some kind of personal experience that the subject believes to demonstrate something about reality. They have an experience, they feel certain about what that experience means, therefore they're right about what that experience means. Just saying this out loud, or gaining any understanding of epistemology, should disabuse most people of thinking this is helpful in supporting God's existence. Religious experience is a fascinating and important phenomenon, and it's one that I'm personally interested in, but invoking it as evidence or as a justification for most kinds of knowledge is simply a mistake in reasoning. To be clear, I'm not really talking about giving a testimony, where believers talk about their life experiences or what God did for them. What I'm talking about is often incorporated into testimonies, but it's a narrower concept. I'm just talking about the appeal to personal experience as evidence for the truth of some religious claim. Like the examples I gave a second ago. Having a revelation, experiencing God in a worship service, having an NDE, remembering a past life, that sort of thing. In some cases, however, the argument from personal experience isn't best thought of as an argument. At least not in the sense that it's adding evidence to the claim that God exists. It may be more accurate, in some cases, to think of it as questioning the value of evidence to begin with. Whether evidentialism, the idea that we should ask for evidence before believing something, applies to religious beliefs. That might sound like a joke, questioning the value of evidence, whether or not we should lower the bar or change the rules of believing in things in order to permit belief in God. And yet, the entry for the epistemology of religion in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy reads, quote, Contemporary epistemology of religion may for convenience be treated as a debate over whether evidentialism applies to religious beliefs, or whether we should instead adopt a more permissive epistemology. Here, evidentialism is the initially plausible position that a belief is justified only if it is proportioned to the evidence. End quote. In fact, this strange lowering of the bar has been argued in favor of explicitly, and an entire movement in theology and apologetics takes it on as a core belief. A school known as Reformed Epistemology, Alvin Plantinga being their most prominent champion. I'll save them as the subject for a future episode, but Reformed Epistemologists make use of a concept that's very similar to the argument from personal experience, the so-called sensus divinitatis. The term sensus divinitatis, coined by John Calvin, refers to a hypothetical human sense that provides an immediate, self-authenticating experience of God. According to them, knowledge of God can be directly acquired through this extra sense. They basically incorporate the argument from personal experience as a fundamental part of their epistemology, believe it or not. Before we talk about the content of an experience, we should examine the reliability of the cognitive hardware that we had the experience on. 
We know for certain that it can be manipulated through drugs or sleep deprivation or technology like transcranial magnetic stimulation. We can alter your brain physically and thereby change your experiences such that no one would argue that what you're seeing or hearing corresponds to the external world. Your brain is not an objective pipeline to reality. There are endless examples that demonstrate this, but surprisingly, it's even true of things that you wouldn't think were subject to manipulation to the extent that they are, like our own memory. Psychologist Elizabeth Loftus studies memory, and research conducted in her field demonstrates that it works much differently than our intuitions would suggest. Many people believe that, that memory works like a recording device. You just record the information, then you call it up and play it back when you want to answer questions or identify images. But decades of work in psychology has shown that this just isn't true. Our memories are constructive. They're reconstructive. Memory works a little bit more like a Wikipedia page. Loftus studies false memories, the phenomenon of remembering events that never happened, or recalling real events differently than they actually happened. Researchers have discovered methods for reliably implanting false memories in a subject's mind, from trivial details to emotionally jarring occurrences. So in a study done in Tennessee, researchers planted the false memory that when you were a kid, you nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard. And in a study done in Canada, researchers planted the false memory that when you were a kid, something as awful as being attacked by a vicious animal happened to you, succeeding with about half of their subjects. And in a study done in Italy, researchers planted the false memory when you were a kid, you witnessed demonic possession. I referenced Elizabeth Loftus in the Satanic Panic episode from last year, talking about the pseudoscience of recovered memory. Loftus and other psychologists discovered that the methods that therapists had been using to, quote, recover memories that they believed to be repressed by their patients were perfect methods for implanting false memories, as their experiments demonstrated. Some therapists had been inadvertently implanting false memories in their patients, using the techniques that Loftus had shown to cause entirely fabricated memories to take root. Some patients were going into therapy with one problem, maybe they had depression, eating disorder, and they were coming out of therapy with a different problem. Extreme memories for horrific brutalization, sometimes in satanic rituals, sometimes involving really bizarre and unusual elements. And so what these studies are showing is that when you feed people misinformation, about some experience that, that they may have had, you can distort or contaminate or change their memory. We can't reliably distinguish true memories from false memories. We need independent corroboration. The point is not exactly to undermine the argument from personal experience by talking about false memories. The point is to seriously evaluate the reliability of our brains, the cognitive hardware that we have our experiences on. There are verified instances of our experiences radically misrepresenting reality, without any drugs or malevolent actors, and we have to take that into account when we have an experience that seems to go against everything we know about the world. What's more likely, that the entire natural order has been violated, or that you're mistaken? This isn't to say that our minds are never trustworthy, only that we need to have some grasp of how our brains construct our perceived reality, as well as an accurate understanding of the cognitive shortcomings, biases, and bugs that we have. If we don't consciously attempt to be skeptics, think about our thinking, get to know how our minds work, and so on, we'll have less reason to trust our conclusions. If you reject everything I've just said, or even have contempt for what I've just said, 
I don't think I have to take your personal experience very seriously. But what makes arguments from personal experience so contentious and difficult to tackle is that they are by their very nature personal. And so when we tell our aunt or cousin that we don't accept their claim, they almost always take it as a personal insult. They internally assume that we're calling them a liar. But of course, this generally isn't the case. Rather, we're saying that while we accept that they had their experience, we don't accept that their interpretation of their experience is accurate. For most of the people I know who have had some kind of religious experience that they take to add credence to their beliefs, it's not a question of whether they're lying about their experiences. I believe that you really had that experience, and even that it could have been profound and meaningful and even real in a certain sense. But that's not really the problem. There's an extra step after having the experience to begin with, which is having an explanation for your experience. That's what's really in question, your interpretation of your experience. I don't doubt that you had your experience. I doubt that you're able to discern what the source of the experience was by virtue of having it. It's such a simple thought, but for some reason, many people seem to think that because they had the experience, they're also the authority on what could or couldn't have caused that experience. Sometimes you get the reply, but how else can you explain what I saw? Or you can't prove my experience wasn't supernatural. This is just an argument from ignorance, the assumption of a conclusion based on lack of evidence to the contrary. There's an infinite number of things we could imagine that we couldn't disprove. There's more that goes into deciding whether something is probable or not. What would we expect the world to look like if it were true? What would we expect if it were not true? Does it invoke fewer unjustified assumptions than other explanations on offer? Is it compatible with other beliefs we have a high credence in? So you're outside on a beautiful night, you're admiring the moon, and your friend says, well, you know, I've always been partial to the green cheese hypothesis. I think that the moon is made of green cheese. And you say, well, we've been to the moon. We've brought pieces of it back. We can see the moon. We can take spectra of its uh, composition. It looks like it's rock. It does not look like it's cheese. And they say, well, that, you know, that would be the naive green cheese theory. But the sophisticated green cheese theory says that there are about 10 meters of moon dust on the surface on top of the main body of the moon, which is all green cheese. And you say, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we've studied enough about the moon to know its density and its rotation and so forth, and it really matches uh, what you would expect from metal and rock and things like that, not from what you would expect from cheese. And your friend says, well, you shouldn't expect that lunar green cheese is just like regular green cheese. This green cheese does exactly that. So what can you do in this uh, case where your friend is being a little bit overly skeptical? How do you escape the, the threat of just a nihilism that arose any possibility of knowing things? The answer is that you're allowed to say, but you're crazy. <laughs> what you're saying is absurd. The, the only thing is that you need to be able to back that up. Why is it crazy? to say that the moon is made of green cheese. It's not because we visited there. It's not because we have analyzed it spectroscopically. It's because it's embedded in a larger context. We know something about the solar system and how it was formed. We know what moons and planets basically are. We know what cheese is. It's a dairy product. It comes from <laughs> cows and sheep and goats and so forth. It does not give rise to things like the moon. The point is that when you analyze the truth or falsity of some fact that you would like to understand about the world, you do that within the context of a bigger picture. Fitting any explanation into the bigger picture of knowledge that already exists can't just be waved away. 
Most likely, since this is a personal experience, they'll probably just continue with the how else do you explain my experience route or otherwise resist. But how does their experience stack up against other claims supported by this argument? And I'm not just talking about Muslims who have NDEs and see Muhammad instead of Jesus, like Christians do. There are thousands and thousands of people who claim to have been abducted by aliens. Nearly everything a theist argues to defend personal experience and the reliability of their interpretation can be used in support of believing alien abductees. Carl Sagan, in his book The Demon Haunted World, said that he would occasionally, quote, get a letter from someone who was in contact with aliens. I am invited to ask them anything. And so over the years I've prepared a list of questions. Remember, the extraterrestrials are very advanced. So I ask things like, please provide a short proof of Fermat's last theorem, or the Goldbach conjecture. And then I have to explain what these are because aliens will not call it Fermat's last theorem. So I write out the simple equation. I never get an answer. On the other hand, if I ask something like, should we be good? I almost always get an answer. End quote. On the subject of near-death experiences, Rabbi David Wolpe said the following. I'm not willing to say that it's proof of the afterlife, but I'm also not willing to dismiss it with a few laughs and say that all the millions of people who have this experience and have felt that it gave them important information about life are wrong and foolish. Um, Every single word of his also defends alien abductees. You have this experience that contradicts reason and knowledge we have about reality. You believe it anyway. But if that's the standard we're adopting, how are we not opening the floodgates and validating every stupid thing anyone has ever claimed? The processes that create our experiences do not always correspond to reality in the way we think they do. Many of these experiences, if taken to mean what religious people think they mean, would contradict our understanding of reality and require a rejection of many well-established facts about the world. We would also be led to contradictory ideas, as well as all kinds of absurdities. Why not accept accounts of alien abduction at face value, or accounts of past lives, or people who claim to be Jesus reincarnate? If we accept this as a valid epistemological tool, I don't see on what grounds we can exclude things like that. This faulty method for arriving at truth also leads us, as I mentioned, to opposite conclusions on the same question. How do we decide when two ideas, both supported by the argument from personal experience, come into conflict? If we examine all the claims made that are based on the argument, many of them are contradictory, but they're all presenting the same evidence using the same epistemological method. Sometimes the experience entails a divine message that can take the form of audible words, visions, or dreams. In other words, revelation, the communication of knowledge from a supernatural being. Nearly all cults and religions are based on this flawed way of knowing. Claiming that you're God's messenger and what you're saying is actually from God quickly and easily grants authority to the prophet, it wins arguments over morality, historically it's decided who gets power and money and sex frequently. But if other Christians want to dismiss Joseph Smith, for example, as a false prophet, they need to explain their criteria for distinguishing between genuine and false revelations. It can't be the Bible, since the New Testament contains different rules and commands from the Old Testament. If the New Testament is genuine and gives instructions that differ from those in the Old Testament, why couldn't the Book of Mormon give instructions that differ from the New Testament? It's the same principle. On what grounds do you accept one new covenant that changes all the rules and reject another new covenant that changes all the rules? If God really did tell the prophet, however, how are we supposed to know, and I'm sorry I keep bringing this up but it's stuck in my head now, how can we tell it's not an evil God? 
The evidence we have fits the good god and evil god hypotheses, except it fits the evil god hypothesis better. An evil god could have deceived everyone and caused suffering and conflict by giving several incompatible revelations to different groups. It's harder to make sense of why a good god would allow such confusion and resulting bloodshed and eternal damnation. I would also add that it's pretty hard to believe that there's a god who's supposedly intelligent, but the best way he's come up with to communicate with us is for a few crazy people to have weird hallucinations and then try to convince everyone that what they saw was real. Thomas Aquinas, building on the doctrine of revelation, believed there to be two types of revelation from God, general and special. In general revelation, God reveals himself through his creation, which is sort of similar to what it says in Romans chapter 1. Quote, They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. End quote. That's distinct from Aquinas' point, which is that some truths about God can be learned through the study of the natural world. According to Paul, we can at least figure out that God exists because of nature, specifically the sky. This is essentially the how-can-you-be-an-atheist-look-at-that-sunset argument, and it's worth mentioning that it's in the Bible to remind you how impressive Paul was. According to Aquinas, special revelation is knowledge communicated by supernatural means, such as scripture or personal experience. Uh, there's one thing that, that we know about the history of ideas, which is that in the past, everyone was wrong about everything, uh, pretty much. People believed that there were unicorns and that the uh, sun revolved around the earth and that mice were spontaneously generated by, from, from piles of straw and that uh, the cause of illness was foul-smelling smell, air. So we just know that humans are naturally just sinks of error. Uh, how, do we, how do we know more than our ancestors did? Well, there are a number of, of claimed routes to knowledge which we now know are fallacious, such as authority, scripture, dogma, the feeling of subjective certainty, the hermeneutic parsing of sacred texts. So there, there are many recipes for error, but there is only one generator of truth, other than logical and mathematical truths, but for truths about, about the world. And that is what the philosopher Karl Popper called conjecture and refutation. Namely, you offer hypotheses and you see whether they withstand attempts to falsify them, um, empirically but also logically. Uh, of course, we can't take revelation seriously as a means to knowledge. It doesn't consistently produce the same results, it often leads to mutually incompatible results, and there's no way to separate legitimate from non-legitimate revelations. As is often the case with religion, I don't reject the beliefs so much as I reject the methods used to arrive at those beliefs. The religious methods for discovering reality are not in any way reliable. The argument from personal experience obviously should not be counted as evidence. If we did take it seriously, it would lead to mutually exclusive conclusions and open the door to every imaginable absurdity. The processes that create our experiences do not always correspond to reality in the way we think they do, and you're not able to discern what the cause of your experience was by virtue of having it. I'm not sure how personal embarrassment doesn't prevent believers from arguing that their experience and their subjective certainty about their experience means anything. That the way in which I know Christianity is true is first and foremost on the basis of the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And that this gives me a self-authenticating means of knowing that Christianity is true wholly apart from the evidence. That's all I have for you today. I have a new patron to thank, Beat Duck. 
Thank you, Beat Duck. And thanks to my patron Hall of Famers, Peach Machine, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, and Richard Crossan. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter, where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to awkwardly set your fork down and bow your head with your eyes open at family gatherings during prayer, even though you already started eating, you can add me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time. your evidence for the existence of God I right now. I don't have evidence because it's not a scientific claim. If you want a supporting idea, I would say my understanding of other human beings and my experience of other human beings, which leads me to believe that there's something more than material. My understanding of the design of the world, which leads me to believe that we're here not by accident. My appreciation of the fact that human beings, even though we are made of stuff, have consciousness, which leads philosophers like Galen Strawson to assume that even rudimentary material has consciousness because mm -hmm. he can't explain how consciousness arises. Right. I think you've put enough on the table. That okay, yeah. all, none of those are scientific evidence. Ma many of those, ma many yeah. of those claims trespass upon the territory of science overtly. I mean, the claim about mm -hmm. your, your understanding other human beings being suggestive of a divine mm -hmm. artificer. Is that um, a scientific claim? Absolutely. I mean, is your understanding of mathematics also suggestive of a divine art artificer? No, it has to do with my experience. Your ability to learn language? Do you understand? It has to do with my experience of you. When I'm looking at you right now, right. Mm -hmm. you may assume that what I see is a material, but that's not what I see. And it's not what I believe. And I think I, I understand it's not what you there's believe. There's something in you that is more than you believe. I really the, think so. This is now, a, if you want if you want to make that if you want to make that a scientific claim you can but I'm telling you it's a metaphysical claim and to confuse the two is a mistake. Okay, this is this is constrained by our common sense in every other domain of discourse. I mean just take for example the people who think Elvis is still alive. Okay. What what's wrong with this claim? I mean why is this claim not vitiating our academic departments and corporations. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll tell you why, and it's, it's very simple. We have not passed laws against believing Elvis is still alive. It just, it, the problem is that whenever somebody seriously represents his belief that Elvis is still alive in a conversation, in, in, on a first date, at a lecture, at a job interview, mm -hmm. uh, he immediately pays a price. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
he, he pays a price in ill-concealed laughter. Right. Now, now surely you can agree that, with that, that, that. That is a good thing. Now, he, now, then he could rattle on about, this is not a scientific claim. Uh, this is a matter of faith. You know, when I look at you, I, I see you might be Elvis. I mean, he, he, could, he could do this.